As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Odd Lots. I'm Tracy Alloway, executive editor of Bloomberg Markets, and I'm uh, sorry. I think I'm sorry. Maybe I'm happy. I'm happy to tell you that Joe isn't here with me today because he's having his first baby and he's on paternity leave. So we wish him the best of luck with that. And we look forward to many Odd Lots podcasts about the uh, market for baby milk formula or diapers. I don't know. There's probably not markets in those. Uh, in the meantime, though, I am joined by a new co-host today. It's Pim Fox. He has his own radio show on Bloomberg Radio called Taking Stock. Say hi, Pim. Hello. Hi, Tracy. Thanks so much for being here today. You are actually the perfect co-host for this subject matter because we are going to be talking about Big, big changes in the stock market, right? See, I thought you were going to tell me I was perfect because I was old, you know, <laughs> old. Because, you know, when you talk about stock markets, of course, uh, stock markets used to work a lot differently even just uh, 10, 15 years ago, never mind 50 years ago. And you have to remember that, you know, it's an institution, so a lot of people have that institutional memory. That's right, Pim. I was trying to avoid calling you old, but That's okay. you, uh, you went ahead and, and, and went there. We are going to be talking about a specific type of trading today. We are talking about floor trading. We've seen this big debate about computerized high-frequency trading, the changing nature of the stock market. Pim, I know you've been talking about this a lot. Yeah, well, of course, uh, it's a very popular topic, you know, uh, HFT, high-frequency trading, whether they add liquidity, whether they're really in it. But, you know, one of the things I think is useful just to keep in mind is a, kind of what purpose, what role does a floor trader or just, let's say, trader actually play? They are in the middle of a transaction. And we know that they've been sort of, oh, they're the boogeyman, you know, they're the <laughs> terrible things in the world. Middlemen, let's get rid of them. It costs less if we get rid of But middlemen, I, I, I believe they serve a purpose and they have historically served a purpose. And uh, well, we're going to learn a lot about it today. Yeah, and on that note, we are going to roll a little clip for our listeners right now, and they can learn more about what a floor trader actually does. Starting with a quick rundown on the men who transact your everyday business on the floor. These member floor brokers, for instance, who are usually partners in the member firms, trading for you at the post where the stock you want to buy or sell is assigned. The specialist, whom you can pick out because he frequently refers to this book, and the broker's clerk whose telephone links the floor through the order room to the man you know best, your own broker. Because you and he are both professionals, 
your member broker can help you make the best use of the market in carrying out your investment decisions. Suppose you had an order of moderate size. It could be handled all at once or in a flow-in, flow-out series of transactions. Pim, what do you think of that? Uh, I think... It- it, I don't know whether it accurately captured the the energy, but uh, well, you know, the, being on on a floor, you got to understand it's crowded. There are a mm-hmm. lot of people. There's a lot of noise, or at least they used to be. I mean, the floor of the NYSE has gotten smaller, smaller, smaller. You know, they got an options pit, but even you know, in Chicago, they've gotten away from a lot of the sort of traditional images of people shouting back and forth. Yeah, this it's is the open world. outcry system where people use sort of uh, all this industry jargon and uh, hand, hand signals. signals. Yeah, there you go. Very animated sort of trading which is really dying out now it's kind of sad in my mind it's for the history books you know or for movies all right well here with us today to talk about the history of floor trading as well as its future we have keith bliss from catone and co inc he is an actual floor trader and he joins us today in studio thank you tracy good to be with you so maybe just to begin We've touched on it a little, but could you give us an idea of what a floor trader actually does? Well, sure. I think it's worthwhile to explain that there's actually a few different, quote-unquote, floor traders down on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, for example. You have the designated market maker, and their sole purpose is to manage the inventory and keep a continuous flow of trading going. So they must there. It's a it's a defined term where they must have orderly markets, mm-hmm. continuous orderly markets. And when you said inventory, you mean inventory of stock. Inventory of stock. That's correct. So remember, stock prices are really geared towards. You can have analysts that say that they think a stock needs to be priced at this level based upon the dynamics of the company, but really the price of stock. Tick by tick, second by second, minute by minute is really determined by supply and demand. And so you need an inventory manager like that, just like any other product. So mm-hmm. think about flea market or farmer's market. The second group that uh, that you see down on the floor, which is what I am, is an actual floor broker. So to define the terms, you have designated market maker. So they are, they are exactly what they're called. And then you have the floor broker. The floor broker's main role is to represent a client order Hmm. uh, into what's known as the trading crowd to execute that order, either buy or sell orders, and then report back to them what that executed price is. So those are really the two main groups that you see down on the floor. Another third group, because of changes that have occurred over the years on the floor, are sales traders. There's now an institutional sales trading community Uh, that you see down on the floor. And if you look at old pictures from the 60s and 70s, you would see these really decrepit broker booths. You know, <laughs> they look like they'd been built back in the middle of the 1800s, even though the building is, is was only built in 1903. And today we have much, uh, have very modern broker booth spaces, which my firm was one of the first to uh, inhabit, where we actually have seats and we can sit down and we can do other, other things inside of our business floor. And they're the people that really interact with the institutional community, whether it's uh, large mutual funds, pension funds, endowments, hedge funds, and the like, who receive the orders to be executed inside of that market. How did you actually get into the business? I came of age in the middle of the 80s, and of course, Wall Street was going and blowing, and, oh, and, yeah. go, and going to school at a at a college that is halfway between New York and Philadelphia. You all, had to go into financial services, all, all of us, right? All of us decided we were going to go be the new masters of the universe. Uh, <laughs> in the 80s and 90s. But I found my way into Citibank, uh, into the commercial lending, went through their commercial credit training program, and I was was a banker, was a lender. Did that for a while, and then eventually ended up selling order management uh, software to buy-side firms, which was my first taste of what true Wall Street trading was all about. From there, uh, the technology inside of the industry connecting the buy-side to the sell-side for order 
uh, order flow coming into the sell side and then executions going back out was really burgeoning where both sides of that transaction were trying to figure out how to do this in an electronic uh, uh, fashion so that you could eliminate errors, you could be quicker to market, you could be quicker to your transaction. Mm -hmm. So I was hired into a firm to actually run their institutional electronic trading because I had lots of relationships on the buy side and I also knew what technology they were doing on the desk. So that was a that was a great uh, that was a great job. That was in ninety nine two thousand when you know the market was just ripping <laughs> with fourteen to fifteen IPOs a day. I worked for a very large Nasdaq market maker at that time. Eventually, I left there with a group and started a um, started an institutional desk at you all maybe remember the old LeBranching company. That was where how I ended up on the floor. So what was it actually like on the floor at that time? Because things were already changing a little bit, right? Uh, they were. It was still, when I got to LaBranche in 2002, the New York Stock Exchange was still a private, mutually owned uh, type of institution where you still had uh, seats. Mm -hmm. So there were 1,366 seats. You had to buy a seat. You had to actually have a seat in order to be allowed to trade. That's correct. And, and interesting to note, like everything inside of a trader's world, those seats traded like shares of stock. And you could walk <laughs> onto the floor and actually see a bid and offer board for the seats. Like a taxi medallion. Yeah, essentially the same thing. So it, it and, and Pim is, in, as you know, and Tracy, as you know, in a trader's world, if you can trade it, <laughs> we will trade it. Um, so that's kind of that's kind of what we did. So at the height, I think it was around uh, 2002. At the height, seats were actually trading for three million dollars. Oh wow! A seat. So uh, when a gentleman named John Thane came over from Goldman Sachs to become once uh, Dick Grasso's compensation story came out, anybody can Google that and see what I'm talking about there. Mm -hmm. uh, they replaced him with John Thane. And John Thing was one of the big opponents against the New York Stock Exchange at that time. So really interesting hire to bring him in. I think the thinking was that he could start to blend the two sides of the business because the New York was still uh, very much an open outcry auction market yeah. with human-based trading. had about 80% market share at that point in time. At any event, um, brought him in, and he was always uh, the membership, uh, looked at him with a jaundiced eye as soon as he walked on the floor because they always knew that that his intent, his goal, and his ambition was basically to turn the New York Stock Exchange into an electronic communication network and a utility. Basically get rid of them. Yeah, that's correct. And and John Thane or, uh, orchestrated actually a reverse merger, um, which is where a private company takes over a public company but then becomes a public company. Mm -hmm. And he did that with Archipelago, and that's how the New York became a public entity sure. uh, with shares of stock that were traded. And at that point, there were no more private seat holders. All the seat holders were taken out with shares of stock. I think each seat was given somewhere in the neighborhood of 87,000 shares of stock per seat. And, and from that point forward then, there was also a big move by the ECNs, by the ATSs, which stand for, which is alternative trading systems, mm -hmm. dark pools. You'll hear that term thrown around. To actually change the market structure to make the playing field more level and actually to um, get rid of some of the market share that the New York owned. So that's where the market structure changes. Basically really take a bite out of their business. Well, that's right. So that's when the real changes on the floor started to happen and automation had to take over because they were making less and less money. So I think a lot of our listeners probably have a characterization of floor traders and these sort of open outcry pits as these really macho, gung-ho places. Is it actually like that? 
or was there's it? a lot of testosterone <laughs> on the floor yes that that is accurate there's uh, over the course of history and even today there are very few females although there are the, there are the brave few that will that will stand in there and I and it and you're right it's not it's not elbow to elbow shoulder to shoulder fist to fist at times mm-hmm. uh, open outcry auction trading that still occurs sometimes particularly in in uh, periods of market distress where you do need to hold an auction right. to actually discover the price mm-hmm. the, the right price for a buyer and seller to come together um, yes everybody has a perception that also the perception is a lot of paper flying around and there's garbage everywhere I will tell you <laughs> there there is some garbage around but uh, no it's a pretty docile place at this point in time, and, and, and if you had the opportunity, like I did, to walk on the floor in the, in the late 80s and throughout the 90s, I was always struck by the number of people were there. And, the, and at the height, uh, there were 5,000 people working in the five trading floors in 2000. Wow. Hard to imagine for those who've been there and you actually see how small the space is. But uh, it was controlled chaos. Everybody knew their role. The runners, the trade reporters, the brokers, the specialists, the clerks in the booth, they all had their role. They all, it was all very defined. Um, and anybody from the outside walking on there thought it was just mayhem. <laughs> Is there a sort of a crazy anecdote that's shareable for our listeners? Uh, consider this prime time type uh, space. <laughs> sure. It's it's uh, certainly family friendly, and I think everybody will, will get amused by it. But... Um, one of the stories that I always tell when I bring visitors uh, down to the floor of the exchange, I was not there, but you hear the old timers talk about it. It's quite humorous. So, so the, like any community of a bunch of men walking around, be it a fraternity house, an Elks Lodge, a trading <laughs> floor, there's lots of practical jokes that take place. Um, and one of, one of the best stories that they talk about, one of the most favorite days of, of brokers and traders from that era was the day that Ronald Reagan came down hmm. and visited the floor. And... If you knew anything about Ronald Reagan, whenever he stepped out in public and probably in private too, he was always spit shined, creased, never a hair out of place. You know, he all he understood the effect of being a dignified president, and he wanted to show that all the time. So sure enough, when he came down to the floor, his his navy blue suit was perfect. His shoes were polished like mirrors. But one of the tricks that they one of the practical jokes on the floor that they do is they powder somebody's shoes. So if somebody goes out and gets, oh. yeah, if somebody goes out and gets a shoe shine, somebody will distract the person. They'll sneak up behind them and they'll throw baby powder on their shoes. Well, if you've ever <laughs> tried to clean baby powder off of freshly shined shoes, you know that's a disaster. You have to go get them reshined. So Ronald Reagan's coming to the floor. A bunch of the brokers get together and say, "We're going to powder Reagan's shoes." Oh, my gosh. Well, Dick Grasso had caught uh, wind of this uh, little scheme and decided that he was going to intervene and tell them, no, 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 <laughs> you're not you're not powdering the shoes of the most powerful man in the world. And the floor brokers who you know had a love-hate relationship with Dick Grasso, he'd watch out for them, but they really didn't like him coming down with his heavy hand and telling them what not to do, mm-hmm. uh, decided that they were going to go around them. So they actually went to the Secret Service agents that were with Reagan, <laughs> and they planned this in the Secret Service. You would have to have them on side, right? Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely, <laughs> because, I mean, you, you, to get close to the president. And, and, and as a side note, what they said was when Reagan came onto the floor, the Secret Service agents stepped aside because Reagan wanted to get into the crowd. Mm. He, was that, he was that type of uh, human being. Um, so at any event, he, they they were in cahoots with the Secret Service. The Secret Service said, "Yep, be great. Reagan would love it. You know, he he wants to experience things like that. He wanted to be pranked." Um, so uh, they had made that, but of course they were somewhat fearful of Grasso. So Grasso made sure that 
he was with Reagan every step of the way on the floor <laughs> to ensure that the floor brokers didn't do it. So, uh, do you what, think Reagan was confused why Grasso was looking at his shoes the entire time? <laughs> well, I think what it was is Grasso was like a was like a satellite beacon scanning the floor, <laughs> you know, waiting for the enemy lurking about to come powder Reagan's shoes. So what? So what did they do? They didn't powder Reagan's shoes while Grasso was talking to Reagan. No. They powdered Grasso's shoes, <laughs> <laughs> which I'm sure got a few of them in trouble later. But apparently, Ronald Reagan found that great fun and, and really enjoyed his day as a result. That's great. Well, I was going to ask, we do have this big debate still going on in the industry about you know computerized training versus the human um, high-touch element. What is actually the benefit of having an actual person such as yourself uh, work through these trades? In any transaction that happens in life, whether you're buying a gallon of milk, a dozen eggs, or a block of stock, it's it comes down to the notion of price theory and price discovery. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is the right price to buy that item and what is the right price to sell that item? And that really is either an electronic or a manual auction that takes place. The benefit of having a human at times in, in the middle of that transaction, and, and, and let me say this, for very liquid stocks that are moving a lot all the time, you can discover price very quickly using electronic means mm-hmm. to get there. Larger blocks require a little bit more thought and a little bit more ingenuity to discover the right price. So, for example, if I want to buy 5 million shares of Citigroup and I can go electronically and buy that 5 million shares or or blocks of that in in increments um, from $50 all the way up to Mm. or if I can walk into a crowd and negotiate on a manual means and buy that block of stock for $49.98, what should I do for my customer? And it's buy the stock for $49.98. So that's that's part of the reason that we have a hybrid model in the New York. Most of the order flow and transaction is done electronically with algorithms running in the background. But there are situations, a lot of situations, particularly around the open of the market, the close of the market, or in times of market distress – um, where a human talking to another human to be able to negotiate the true price for that transaction provides a greater amount of benefit as opposed to somebody sitting in Beijing uh, and somebody sitting in New York staring at a computer terminal and trying to get to that price. I can execute and get that transaction done quicker, uh, cleaner, dampen the volatility, and hopefully make both sides of the transaction happy as a result. Hmm. Keith, I wonder if you could describe for us or tell us, are there any bits of wisdom that you would offer for the amateur investor, not the person who's getting paid to manage their own money, someone who has to manage their own money or is managing their own money? Uh, You must hear a lot of potential great investments and things. You've learned a lot about following those kinds of things. Tell us about it. Well, there's a couple of things from the from the trading standpoint. I I absolutely would uh, uh, have your goals clearly defined about why you're playing in this. If you're playing to try and skim a few pennies every time you walk mm-hmm. into a trade, that's one way to do it. If you think you're 60 years old and you're going to suddenly increase your retirement nest egg by day trading, you're flat wrong. You will be working in, until you probably die by doing something like that. Um, people need to remember that. The markets are a regulated uh, environment where you're able to put money at risk in a legal, regulated way across the world. So the reason I term it that way is it's not unlike a casino. 
And anybody who knows anything about casinos knows that the house always wins in casinos. So do not get um, allured by come-on schemes or people who are going to say this next penny stock is going to be the next Facebook. It's not. Um, and the second thing that I, that I always advise people, and this is the most challenging, is take all emotion out of your trading, which means it's very hard to sell when skies are blue. It's very hard to buy when the world is coming apart at the seams. But you've got to learn to do that. Warren Buffett does that. And all we need to do is look at his success. I have a, one more question for you before we wrap it up. But when you look at the big changes that have taken over the stock market over the past 20 years, you know, there used to be 5,000 people on the floor. Now there's probably a little less than a thousand. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you know, in 10 years time, what's it going to look like? You know, a lot of that is going to depend upon how market structure changes over the years and the microstructure inside of each of the exchanges has to adapt to the changes in market structure. Mm -hmm. So I'll take you back a little bit. So in 2005, 2006, there was a new regulation that was imposed upon um, equity trading here in the United States called Regulation NMS, Regulation National Market System. That was really the big bang for the explosion in exchanges and ATSs, alternative trading systems here in the United States. So if you take back into the 90s, there were really three uh, major exchanges here in the United States. There was the New York Stock Exchange, the NASDAQ market, and the American Stock Exchange. Mm -hmm. uh, nearly 100% of the volume was dominated by the New York, the MX, and the NASDAQ. Since regulation NMS, there are now 12 equity exchanges in the country and f uh, roughly 40 authorized ATSs or dark pools. Mm -hmm. So what that has created is a very fragmented marketplace. And, and another piece of the rule of Reg NMS, which has really led to the, the destruction in the market share of the New York Stock Exchange, is we are now bound to go to the market that has the best, best execution outcome for our clients, meaning the best price and volume. So if I'm moving a large block of stock, that doesn't mean getting a million shares done in the same place. What that means is probably getting uh, lots of 100 to 500 done in about 25 different locations. You break up the block, basically. I have to. I, I essentially have to. The analogy that I always give to everybody is I say, this has created a problem. And I actually think I've never been able to prove it empirically, but I actually think it's increased the cost of trading. Because imagine a world where you wanted to go buy a dozen eggs, mm -hmm. but grocery stores only sold one egg at a time. Right. So you had to drive around to 12 places to negotiate the price for each egg. You may ultimately get that dozen eggs at a cheaper absolute price than if you bought it all at once. Yeah. But by the time you added up the time and the gasoline that you used to get there, your, trading, your costs actually went up. So that's where we are now. And I think people have really started to come to that realization that it was good in theory, creating more competition, which should drive down prices and do better for the retail investor. But what I think it's done is actually created an environment where it's become more costly. So there's actually a move to think about going back to a more centralized type of trading scheme, what's known as a CLOB or centralized limit order book. Mm -hmm. And those changes may come to pass. I'm not sure it's going to happen. The other thing that they talk about is, is we went to, in 2001, we went from trading in fractions down to pennies. Right. And that really led to a big uh, Pim is shaking his head. Yeah, I, <laughs> I agree with you, Pim. Uh, well, I was just going to say that it really prevented a whole group of people from making a living, and it removed that buffer. 
Yeah. Because they said, if we can't make a living doing this, why would, I, why would I do it? That was the unintended consequence of, I think, what they were trying to do is drive the spreads down to a penny, therefore making it more transparent on the trade and also ostensibly making it cheaper for retail investors to get on a trade. They could, they could then participate with the institution. But what it's done is, you're right, it's actually driven people away from the business. There's no spread. Uh, again, similar to a flea market or a farmer's market, when you go buy a bushel of peas from a from a farmer, you're buying it at $10 a bushel, while his price is really $9 a bushel, and he's earning that spread in between. Same with stock trading. When it gets down to a penny, there's very little spread. When it was a 16th, that's six and a quarter cents. So you had a built-in, you had a built-in margin every time you traded. So what it also did is it drove liquidity away from various price points inside of a market. So if anybody's traded stocks or if you have it, you know that there are different price points. People are willing to buy and sell stock at different price points away from what's called the inside market or the national best bidder offer, what we do here. Well, that liquidity just evaporated when you went to a penny-wide spread and you couldn't get large blocks of stock done. Increased the cost for institutional investors, created a lot of aggravation, increased, um, and this is the other side of the equation, not just trading costs, but also clearing costs, which is a very large component and expense inside of our business. And so anyway, I think the institutions are getting back to saying, hey, let's rethink this a little bit. Maybe we should go to maybe uh, nickel yeah. uh, spread increments and maybe bring liquidity back to a more centralized marketplace. I'm hopeful that's what we'll see in the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. I'm not convinced the regulators think that's a good idea, but news at 11, as they say. <laughs> All right, Keith Bliss, thank you so much. My pleasure. The auction market, created by public orders, responsive to your needs, manned by experts. It is central, flexible, liquid. Each day, this market handles more than $125 million in buy and sell orders. All right, Pim, what did we learn? Well, I learned that it was pretty exciting to be on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, (laughs) but that it's also tough and that you should probably get your elbows sharpened uh, if you want to do well. Yeah, I really like that anecdote about Reagan. Uh, (laughs) um, The other thing I liked was the idea that regulations aren't always... uh, or regulations don't always have the intended effect. Uh, so this idea, right? The law of un- unintended consequences. Right. Exactly. So this idea that uh, regulators wanted to encourage competition, but then they end up actually making it more expensive or tougher for investors to, you know, trade in stocks. That was pretty interesting. Also, the recognition that technology marches on, and there's very little that human beings can do in order to thwart its advance. <laughs> don't stand in the way of technology. That's it. Get on that train. All right. Well, thanks again for joining me. It's a pleasure. I'm Pim Fox. I am the co-host of Taking Stock on Bloomberg Radio, 2 p.m. Wall Street time to 4.30 p.m. just after the close. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Pim Fox. And I'm Tracy Alloway, executive editor of Bloomberg Markets. I'm on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And our guest, Keith Bliss, is also on Twitter. He is at KBGunner1. Thanks so much for listening. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. 
Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.